We've been talking for uh, the last couple of weeks about the idea of servanthood. We've looked at um, Jesus and his disciples and the question that they ask him more than once. I think four or five times in the New Testament we looked at places where his disciples wanted to know, hey Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? When we get to heaven, we want to know one of the moms asked, can my boys sit at your right and left hand? And Jesus, in response to that, made really a a startling claim that in the first week we tried to unpack a little bit. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the face of of sort of a a culture in, in that day, not even in our day, in that day of thinking that these disciples of Jesus had arrived and they had the inside track to greatness in eternity, Jesus turned everything upside down on them and reminded them that's not how it works. Now, in our culture, luckily, we're not self-obsessed today. Isn't that good to know? I mean, nobody in their right mind would publish, like, let's say, a book just of selfies, right? Nobody would do that. Oh, wait. Maybe that happened. I don't know. How many? Okay, let's just find out. How many of you here have never taken a selfie? Oh, look at you bragging. I'm impressed. So that means the rest of you have. I'm going with just self. Maybe some people in the background that unintentionally snuck in. Um, but, but we live in a selfie culture. I saw a picture in this political season of one of the candidates before a group of people. It was a remarkable picture. Everybody in the audience was facing away from the candidate who was standing up on the stage with their phones like this trying to get the picture of them with one of our candidates behind them. Isn't that crazy? The candidate shall remain nameless, although I'm sure some of you know who that particular one was. That's, that's kind of the world we live in. We have become a culture, and we are tempted as a culture to put our interest first, to think of what is best for us, and to focus the whole world as if everywhere we go, we're the star of the picture, and everything else is just staging. And into that kind of a culture, we really need the words and the example of Jesus. We really need to look at a guy who deserved to be the center of attention and yet purposefully and willingly took the back seat. I want to look today and get started at one of the places in Scripture where it sort of defines that for us. And it's in the book of Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we welcome you to turn there. If you don't, we put most of the verses up on the screen as we go along. But in Philippians chapter 2, It's a passage that we believe was, in effect, like a hymn in the early church. It was one of those places. Now, we sang one of, I'm sure, many of your favorite hymns a few minutes ago, Victory in Jesus. Anybody like Victory in Jesus? Yes, of course. I remember Victory in Jesus for one reason. I've told this story before. I can't ever sing that song without thinking of good old Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller was my church history professor in seminary, and every day in class we would sing Victory in Jesus. That's not why I remember it. Dr. Miller also liked to bike. And when he would bike, he would wear the kind of pants that you are supposed to wear when you bike. I didn't know you had to wear those, but if you've ever seen bike shorts, you know what I'm talking. I don't think he ever bought a size big enough for himself. (laughs) Because whenever you saw Dr. Miller biking, you saw more than you wanted to see. (laughs) I don't know what that has to do with victory in Jesus. 
but that's what I remember when I think of that song. Well, there we go. I have lost you again. <laughs> we have those kind of hymns that we sing sometimes in, in, our, in our services, and, and you might have any, some favorites that stick out to you. And, and we think the passage we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 2, part of it acted kind of like a hymn. It's poetic, it's put together in, in a way that you can remember it, and it would have been something that was a hymn particularly to Jesus. But before we get into that part, I want to start in verse 3 of uh, Philippians chapter 2 because it sets the stage for what is to come. When uh, in, in verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, we've talked about this idea for a few weeks of, of servanthood, of, of serving, that Jesus came to serve, and that was kind of his statement to his disciples in the midst when they were fighting for position. And, and Paul, as he looked back at Jesus' life, and he, he's about to describe the kind of person Jesus was, how great, in fact, he was, he starts by saying, as we get into this, understand this is how Jesus lived. He did nothing out of selfish ambition. Now, what would that look like? He did lots out of humility. He thought of others as more important than himself. I used the example last week of traffic. That's one that gets a lot of our kind of frustrations going, particularly if it's particularly busy. But when I think about what would it look like if when you entered into that intersection where 874 and the turnpike come together if everybody in every car thought of others as better than themselves i probably would all still be sitting there (laughs) waiting for somebody else to go because somebody has to go right but wouldn't that just be remarkable if you pulled i mean aren't you always grateful when you're sitting there and somebody actually lets you in because you've played the game right where i've done this sadly where you're like, I'm not going to get, I'm going to be right on the bumper of the person in front of me because that guy that's coming around, he is not getting in. He is not. He needs, he needs to repent, and he needs to go to church. He is not getting in here. And I'm right. Th- Have you ever done that? Any true confessions? Anyone? I mean, we, and, you know, and then usually I'm in my, my little Honda, and he's in like a Ford F-350, so I back off because, you know, you got to, Pride only gets you so far at certain points, and you let them in. But, but what would it look like if we, if we, even in that simple scenario, that was how Jesus lived his life as Paul thought about it, that this is what he did. And then he says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So having said that as the backdrop, he says you're, this is, you're supposed to act in the same way. And he starts off in verse 6, who being in very nature God. Now that's huge. That is kind of his A number one qualification. When we started this process, we looked at the title that Jesus used for himself several times, Son of Man, and we traced that back into the Old Testament and traced it forward into parts of the New Testament to show that that title showed something of the position and power of Jesus. But here, when I read this and we think about who being in very nature, God, I also think of one of the 
the most beautiful pictures of the majesty of God that we have in Scripture. It's found in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord, Isaiah would say, high and lifted up. And, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he paints the picture that the angels are around him with six wings each. And with two wings, they covered their faces. And with two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they were flying. And they cried out all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and then the, the, the glory of that scene. Well, I say that because in John chapter 12, verse 41, what you need to know is as John talks about that scene in Isaiah chapter 6, and as he says some of the things that Isaiah says uh, after that as he's confronted with his own sinfulness and the holiness of God, uh, John writes in verse 41 of, of chapter 12 that Isaiah said this, because he was seeing Jesus. Now that's a remarkable thing. Because in our minds, sometimes we separate who Jesus is and who God is. I know that's, to some degree, the limits of our own ability as finite human beings to try to grasp a concept that really doesn't make sense. This idea of the Trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we practically try to sort it out, we often have that division between here's God the Father, the, the Holy, the High One, Isaiah 6, God the Father. And then we think God the Son, Jesus, the, the one who walked this earth, and that's what, what this hymn will get to in just a minute. But before we get to that, before we understand what that means, we have to go back and make that equation between God the Father and God the Son that there's not a difference, that when Jesus was in very nature God and emptied himself of all that it meant to be in heaven with the angels surrounding him, singing his praises night and day, that was a huge, huge act of service, of sacrifice. It wasn't he was always sort of less than the Father. No, he is co-equal and co-eternal, as the theologians would say, with the Father. And so, who in very nature, God, did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped, or other translations say something to hold on to. He didn't say, this is my right. I deserve the adoration of the angels. I deserve the glories of heaven. I don't want to go to that dirty place, that fallen earth with its sin and all that will mean. I don't want to be born into a manger, which is a feeding trough for cattle. I don't want to live my life as a child of a, of a working man, a carpenter, and, and his young wife, and amid the scandal even that my birth might bring. No, Jesus didn't say, I deserve this and want to hold on to it, but it says in verse 7, but made himself nothing or emptied himself taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross talk about a movement down a movement from glory to abasement a movement from the, the wonders and the beauty of heaven to the ugliest, maybe, moments that humanity is capable of. That's the, the place Jesus was willing to go. And then the, the next part of this hymn tells us, therefore, 
because he was willing to do that, because he emptied himself, because he humbled himself, because he became obedient even unto death, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The movement of Jesus was down. The movement was to humble himself. The movement was to become a servant. And Paul says, before he gets into that magnificent hymn that shows Jesus emptying himself and then being exalted, he said, let this mind be in you, just as it was in Christ Jesus. Last week we looked at that moment when maybe of all the moments in his life, it's most startling to see outside of his death on the cross how low Jesus was willing to go when he washed his disciples' feet. That's, that's serving. That's servanthood. Now, when we talk about all this, there's a connection that Jesus makes, and I want us to make that connection today. He says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And part of the serving, he finishes out in the last part of Matthew 20, 28, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In another place, uh, Luke, a little bit later, uh, we'll look at Luke 15 in a minute, but in Luke, I think it's 17 or 18, Jesus says this. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So that part of the emptying himself, part of the serving that Jesus did was for a particular purpose. He came Ultimately, that his life, not just to show his own humility and his own abasing of himself, but rather that his life, his humility, his sacrifice would serve a greater purpose, and that would be that those who are far from God could be brought near. That you and I, lost in our sin, could be forgiven and restored to relationship with a holy and righteous God who in fact sits seated on the throne of heaven, high and lifted up, surrounded by the praise of the angels. That's a pretty worthy goal. I'm awfully and eternally grateful that God would use that as kind of the motivation to make that move. And I think Jesus illustrates that for us as well by some parables he tells. And I want to look at one in particular for the rest of our time together today that you're pretty familiar with. It's found in Luke chapter 15. If you want to Turn back a few pages in your scriptures. We'll also put these verses up there. Um, Luke chapter 15. Now, before we get into the parable itself, we need to set the scene. And to do that, we have to go to the first few verses of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, gives us a bit of background about what's going to happen and why these things are going to be happening and told. And so in Luke 15, verse 1, the, the, the author of Luke writes this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. I love it. Even in the modern translations, we, we separate sinners as if tax collectors aren't bad enough. There's a whole different category of sinners there nonetheless. So, and that's normal, right? Jesus was that kind of a person. Somehow the ones that were on the outs with society at times were drawn to him, and this was not unusual. So he's there. Notice who else wants to be around or is around. Verse 2, it goes on and tells us, But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, 
Muttered, that's a great word, isn't it? Have you ever muttered? Muttering. When you hear muttering, hmm, it's bad. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you've got this divided crowd. You've got those who were the leaders religiously of the people, those whose life revolved around the religious observances of the temple, those who were trained in the particulars of the Old Testament and the law, those who knew it and lived it, and right next to them, apparently, or near them, are these tax collectors and sinners, these people that, in their mind, are outsiders, tax collectors being particularly treasonous to Israel because they've allied with Rome and they've been given permission basically to rob the people of Israel by the way that it worked when you have the the force and the army of Rome behind you. You can get away with a lot of things back in that day. And so these two groups are there, and Jesus knows this. And because Jesus is Jesus, he kind of knows what they're feeling and thinking. And so the verse that follows, verse 3, tells us, because of this, because this was the thing, then Jesus told them this parable. Now, he tells three parables that seem to be very related. We're going to look at the third of the three, but before we get to the third of the three, just real quick, the first two um, are very simple and very straightforward. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. And in that parable, what happens is a farmer has 100 sheep, one gets lost. What does the farmer do? He leaves everything behind and goes and hunts the lost sheep and brings it back. The second parable, also pretty quick, just a few verses, is the parable of the lost coin. Um, There's a woman who had 10 silver coins and loses one. When she realizes one is lost, she turns her house upside down, desperate to find that one lost coin. And of course, when she finds it, she's awfully happy, just like the farmer, when he finds his lost sheep, is also awfully happy. And Jesus even makes the point in the same way, verse 10, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. So remember, we've got this tension in the crowd. On this side, we've got the the sinners. I mean, I'm not saying really in our church, because you guys look particularly holy today. And on this side, we have the Pharisees, the religious leaders. This is not the right side to be on either, so don't get excited. And and they're, they're not good with each other they're not happy they know that they don't like them and they know that that you look down on them and you don't want to be near them and all of you are in this room and jesus says you understand when you lose something you go hunt it and i can't help but feel in some way that message isn't lost on these two groups this group who wants to be near jesus who seeks him out because society tells them they're worthless, except for this this man who seems to somehow value them. And this group who thinks, well, we might get it, but you really don't know how bad they are. So having set the scene, Jesus tells a third parable. We call it typically the parable of the prodigal son. And he starts the parable this way. Verse 11. There was a man who had, how many sons? Two sons. Now, I would guess if I were to say, can somebody tell me the parable of the prodigal son? Most of you could, and you would probably, as is often the case, focus on the first son that's mentioned, the younger son. 
And if you're familiar with that story, it kind of ties in with the first two stories. That Jesus is telling the story of a, of a younger son who basically goes to his father. I, I love the Timothy Keller writes the book, The Prodigal God. And he says it's as if he goes to his father and says, Dad, I really wish you were dead. But since you're not, could you give me my inheritance anyway? That's a great way to start a conversation. But that's, in effect, what he's saying to his father. His father allows that. His father divides up the estate, gives the younger brother his portion, and the younger brother goes off and has a ball. He travels to a far country. He's spending his resources. He's the life of the party. If he's at the bar, the rounds are on him. He's got all the friends he could want in life until... The money runs out. And when the money runs out, so do the friends. And he's left with nothing. In fact, he finds himself feeding pigs and having to eat the things that the pigs eat. Now, that's pretty offensive, too, by the way. If in a Jewish household, pigs are unclean animals, you don't eat the pig that would be wrong, that would make you unclean, so you certainly don't eat the stuff the unclean animal also eats. So he's at the lowest point he can possibly be, and then he comes to his senses. He says, you know what? My father's servants have it better than me, so I'm going to go back, and he prepares a whole speech in his head. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I ask you, welcome me back, not as a son, but just as one of your hired hands. I'll live. I'll serve you the rest of my life. Please, 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 please. And on his way back, one of the obviously beautiful parts of the story is we, we see that while he was a long way off, Scripture says, the father sees him coming and runs to him. And before he can even get his whole spiel out of his mouth, the father already is changing the story and accepting him back into his family with all the rights that he'd already given up. He, he brings him... In. He, he gives him the cloak and, and all the symbols of the father's wealth and authority and has a huge party. Kill the fattened calf for my son who was lost, has been found, who was dead, is now alive. It's a great story, yes? You can say yes, it's okay, it's in the Bible. Wonderful story. That was the, that was the story of all of us, by the way. We were at one time just like the lost sheep that the farmer went to great lengths to rescue. We were like that lost coin that the woman dropped everything to pursue until she found it. We were like the younger brother who at one point in our life did whatever we could with no regard to the Father, God, and lived our life apart from Him. And at some point when we realized we were at the lowest point we could be or we were far from God or we were eating pig slop, however that looks, and we said, I would rather be a servant in my father's house than live this way. And we turned back to him. We repented. We said, God, I'm sorry. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And just like the father in that parable, he welcomes us back. And he restores us to our, our rightful place, giving, restoring the relationship and making us joint heirs with his son, Jesus. All of that is true of us. But then we get to the second son. Because the man had how many sons? Two, And I want to talk about the older brother for a few minutes. Because this is the one, on the one hand, that I relate to. Because I've been a, a Christian most of my life. I became a believer 
at about seven years old. Um, I actually, I think I to, if I haven't told you this, that's pretty cool. And I was looking through some books, and I found the book that my dad and my pastor and my uncle used to help me come to faith in Christ. It's called the ABQ book. I have it in my office. It was the coolest thing when I came across it. I'm like, I'm keeping this. Well, I don't know where I found it, but I found it in a store. And I, I got it. Awesome. And they, it explains the reality of the gospel, that all have sinned. I, even at seven years old, I know it's hard to believe, was a sinner. And I recognized my need for a Savior. And through the witness of my family and my pastor, I came to that realization and asked Christ to come into my heart as Savior and Lord. And I became a believer. And so I've lived since seven years old as a Christian. Now, a lot of you know, my nickname around here is PC. Now, obviously, that's because Pastor Charles... Uh, it also means professional Christian. <laughs> Not really. But you might think that. I'm like the preacher. I'm the professional at this. That's my whole job, to be the professional Christian, which puts me awfully close to the Pharisees and teachers of the law that are hanging out when Jesus is telling these stories. And when Jesus tells these stories, he hits the younger brothers on this side, he hits those who are sinners and tax collectors by saying, look, you were lost and we sought you. But this part of the parable is squarely aimed at this side, at the, at the Pharisees, at the teachers of the law. Because see, here's the temptation that we fall into in church world, in Christianity. It's, it's the temptation all of us can easily fall into. And that's, we look at the world and we think we're in and everyone else is out. We look at the world and we think, I'm good. I do what I'm supposed to. I go to church. I read my Bible. I fill in the blank. And it's those people that don't, that are out there, that are the real problem with this world. We can fall into that temptation to think it, which is exactly what's going on in front of Jesus. And so he tells this parable, and he gets to verse 25 and the reaction of the older brother. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Why was he in the field? He was working, doing what he's supposed to do. He always did what he was supposed to do. He was a good kid. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And the servant answers in verse 27, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. Oh, what joy must have filled his soul. His brother. Anybody have a younger brother? Now, I don't want to do any psychological counseling here, so let's just be careful. Um, anybody have a younger brother like you just love, 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 love? I hope all your hands don't go down because that would get awkward. Yes, I see that hand, Drake. I mean, Matthew or whoever right over there. Yeah, I mean, some of, we have our kind of younger siblings. We look out for them. We want what's best for them, that sort of thing. You know, you kind of have that relationship. And, and when, when things are tough with them, often it's the older sibling that they confide in. They, they, you've 
kind of got a few years on them. They don't know if they want to talk to the parents, so they call aside the older brother or sister and say, listen, I don't know. And they talk. So you, you might have that affection. You would think maybe that would be the case in this house. And now that his brother had gone away, he worried about him all that time. He wasn't sure what was going on with him. And now he's home. This older brother must be excited. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. That's a shocking statement. When you think about it in those terms, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Because most of us probably want what is good for our, our siblings. We want to we know that they're kind of on the right path and they're connected in the right ways. And you would think that would be the case. But when he comes in from the field, he hears the party and he is furious. He's angry. He won't even go in. So what does the father do? His father went out and pleaded with him. Anybody ever thrown a party? Yeah. Is it fun? I have mixed messages here. Yeah. The, uh, the sinners over here say no, and the righteous over here say yes. No, that's not right. I mean, it's work, right? There's a lot to do. You've got to get ready. And when it finally comes, it seems like there's never enough time to get everything right. And you're kind of rushing around at the last minute. And you've got a lot to do. The dad is the host of this party. It is one of the best days of his life. As a parent, there can be nothing worse than worrying about the safety of your child. Or even when you get the news that the worst thing has happened. And you have to deal with that. Can't imagine anything that would be worse than that. And the father had gone through that to the point that even while his son is away, he's hoping any day he might see that familiar silhouette on the horizon. And he's back and he's celebrating. And his other son is just ticked off. And he has to leave this moment of revelry to go outside to placate the other brother. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Both sons needed the same grace from the father. I mean, we all see it in the younger brother because he, you know, wild living and all. But the older brother, the one that stayed home, the one that was in the field, the one that was doing the work, surely he doesn't need anything from the father. No, he needs the same grace that the younger brother did. So the father goes out and pleaded with him. And the, the older brother answers. Listen to how he addresses his father. Look, that would not have gone well with me. <laughs> Son, we need to talk. Look, no, right? Not going to work. Look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. And to that I would say, well, thanks, Dad. I didn't really want a young goat. I like the calf better. But nonetheless, you didn't do anything for me. I've done everything for you, Father. You've done nothing for me. Can you imagine? That's pretty harsh. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, next verse, but when this son of yours... Hello, this, not my brother, not 
fill in the blank of his name, not anything of affection or kindness or gentleness, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. How does he know that, by the way? Do they have spies or following him on Facebook? I don't know. It was something weird. You kill the fattened calf for him. In effect, how dare you, Father? I mean, just really laying into his father on what should be a moment of great celebration, what should be a day of, of, of happiness throughout the family. The father goes on and says, My son, notice the father doesn't return. The looks and the this son of yours. He extends to him grace, just like he did his younger brother. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the parable ends. And we're left hanging, wondering, what did the older brother do? Now remember, Jesus is telling these stories to a particular group of people. And he wants to make the point to the one group as tax collectors and sinners, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he wants to make the point to the other group, the righteous, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And oh, by the way, that's you too without me. It's easy in our world to divide everything into to categories, to kind of say there's, there's the religious and the irreligious, there's the, the moral and the immoral, there's the conservative and the liberal, whatever divisions we want to make, and put ourselves in the one category and assume everybody in the other category, we can just write them off. And Jesus comes into a world where the categories were clearly defined. The lines had been drawn. And he upsets the apple cart. Not because he came and had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Not because he came and talked to them and forgave them and interacted with them. But because he had the audacity to say to those who thought they were in that it's possible that we can use that to keep us away from the father as well. Because the older brother wasn't so different than the younger brother, ultimately. The older brother, he wanted the father's stuff, but not necessarily the father. He wanted the same thing the younger brother did. Why is he angry? Well, what did dad do? Younger brother comes back having wasted his portion of the estate, and dad restores him to the estate, so now the older brother, who hasn't wasted anything, sees his portion cut. Because younger brother is back. And that's all he can think about. He can't say, my younger brother was lost and now is found. I thought he was dead, now he's alive. He can't say, my dad, who I've worked beside all of these years, is having one of the best days of his life. So I want to celebrate. No, all he can think about is I lost some money today. He didn't really have the interest necessarily of the father in mind as much as he had his own in mind. 
And Jesus confronts those religious leaders and those Pharisees and sometimes me with that same reality. Let this mind be in you, Paul writes, that was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that mind as we read that hymn? Who was here and was willing to go here so that all of us could somehow get into the kingdom. All of us who were far from God could be brought near. And that's what we're told is the case. That we who know Christ are here, joint heirs with Jesus. And we need to go here so that all the people around us might also get the same opportunity we have, be exposed to the same truth that we were, come to understand the same gospel that you and I did that was our salvation. That there is a God who we have all been alienated from by our own selfish, sinful choices. And in spite of that, God always acts in love toward us, demonstrating it unmistakably by sending Jesus to die. So that the invitation could be made to everyone to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. Not just to those who kind of knew all the rules and, you know, when to stand and when to sit and when to say amen and when to be quiet and when to bow and when to whatever, because we got out of our liturgy. Not only for them, but for everybody, even the ones who we think might even be hopeless, like tax collectors. Even them. I think that is one of the hardest things in our world we as believers have to wrestle with. Because this world that we live in is increasingly moving away from the things of God. I think that's easy and fair to say. I don't think that's overstating. I hope you don't feel that way, but I think that's the case. That the way people are thinking about life and acting in life, morality issues and the like that we're confronted with regularly, there's a sense of, I don't want any sort of authority on my life telling me what I can do. I want to do what I want to do and still feel okay about it. And it's easy as believers trying to to follow a scriptural view of what it means to live in this world and who God is and who we are and what it means to be saved, to distance ourselves, to insulate or isolate ourselves from that. And the danger is that we can get so self-satisfied looking at a comparison basis between we who are good and those who aren't that we miss the point that's made not just once in Scripture, but at least three times.
God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. What does it mean for God to oppose somebody? That's not good, right? I mean, the Pharisees, can we agree they were a bit proud? And when Jesus interacts with them, did it ever go particularly smoothly? Maybe a few. The, the, the thing with Nicodemus, that was, you know, John chapter 3. We get John 3.16 from that very encounter. But overall, when Jesus confronts the Pharisees and religious leaders, it gets testy. It gets tense. He has some harsh things to say. You're whitewashed tombs. So get out and get a tan. I don't know, you know, just whatever. He's like mean, it seems like. Jesus doesn't take kindly to that. God opposes the proud. Those caught up in their own righteousness. And he gives grace to the humble, those who recognize I have nothing of merit to stand on in the face of a holy God. I am thrilled to be able to say that I know the creator of heaven and earth because of what Jesus did for me. That is an honor. That is humbling. And I don't want it to stop being humbling. Because when it does, <laughs> I stray a little too far this way. Instead of humbling myself and looking over here and saying, where are the places I can have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Where are the places that I can do what Paul encouraged us to do in those verses before he gets to that hymn uh, in verses 3 and 4 where, where he tells us that uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Where can I find a place where I can do something to show someone that I don't think I'm better than them? Because I will tell you, in our world, a lot of people on this side, in that crowd what Jesus had, look at us who proclaim Christ and think we think we're better than them. And a lot of people in Jesus' day who were on this side, they didn't think that about him. And Jesus is better than you, right? So, that's, he's better than me. Is he better than you? Yeah, Jesus is better than me. Jesus is better than all of us. So if he didn't think those folks were worthless, then I better not either. I don't know what that looks like day to day. I don't know how that becomes a part of my life, but I don't want that attitude to creep in. Because this passage says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost, who didn't come to be served, but came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together.
Gracious God, I thank you for what you have done for us. I recognize that I did not deserve and do not deserve the gift of your salvation. That the fact that you entered history, leaving and emptying yourselves of the glory of eternity, to take on human likeness, to walk this earth, to be tempted in every way as I am and yet without sin. The fact that you, by your teaching and by your example, were willing to serve others and ultimately serving the, the greatest need of all humanity when you willingly laid your life down on the cross. God, I thank you that you highly exalted him and that you have given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, today, if there's a person in this room who does not know the salvation that you have made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I pray today that they would move towards you. They would recognize they are far from you because of their choices, because of their sinful lifestyle, because they have done things that you said not to do and not done things that you said to do. But it doesn't matter because you still love them enough that if they would ask, you will forgive and restore. And Lord, today, if there's someone who needs to turn to you in faith, repenting of their sin and believing in the gift of Jesus, I pray today would be that day of salvation. Lord, I, I also pray for us who maybe identify more as the older brother. God, convict us where we need to be convicted. Show us of the ways that, that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And help us to find ways where we might serve others. Following your example. So that your kingdom might grow. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.